This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. The COVID pandemic has had enormous effects on the U.S. economy, but not quite the same set of enormous effects that a lot of us were bracing for two years ago. We've had a much more rapid recovery of employment and economic output than observers were expecting. We've also had much higher inflation. We were warned of a tsunami of evictions, but eviction rates actually went down across the country to an extent that can't be explained simply by the effect of relief programs. The competing demands of employment and child and elder care were supposed to push women's labor force participation down markedly compared to men's, and that didn't happen. Nor did home prices crash. They soared. We were warned of a state and local government budget crisis that would force tax hikes and service cuts. Instead, state governments have more money than they know what to do with. They're suspending gas taxes, handing out rebate checks. So why were the confident predictions we heard so wrong? Well, Jerusalem Dempsis has a really interesting look at that in The Atlantic, where she's a staff writer. Before joining The Atlantic, Jerusalem was a policy reporter at Vox and co-host of The Weeds podcast. And she's here to talk with me about what went wrong with so many of these predictions. Hi, Jerusalem. Thanks for being here. Hi, Josh. Happy to be here. So I actually want to start by talking about the eviction tsunami, because I think it was arguably the most wrong of these predictions. Well, maybe the, maybe the inflation ones were the most wrong. We'll get to that a little bit later. But, but on the evictions, can you lay out what the experts were predicting? I mean, these numbers like 30 or 40 million Americans would face eviction. Where did these estimates come from? Yes. So um, there were a range of eviction estimates floating around in 2020. And the one that really caught fire was one that came out of a coalition, including the Aspen Institute, the National Low Income Housing Council, as well as the Eviction Lab, and a various other activists and um, researchers. So eviction data in general is really, really bad. Um, the best data that we have is from the Eviction Lab um, that's led by Matthew Desmond, who uh, listeners may know uh, is the author of the famous book Evicted and is a and sociologist. And the really big thing that we've his research really bears out is just how little we know about what's going on in the very low income part of the rental market. Um, and so he created an eviction lab at Princeton uh, to sort of try and track this, but they only have like a handful of states and localities that they're able to get any kind of reliable data on. And they're very open and honest about this. It's like something that they're really trying to work on. The reason that data is bad is you basically have to go into court records in all these different jurisdictions to even figure out who's getting evicted and on what scale. Yeah, I mean, states and localities just don't track it themselves. Like, it's not like this data is just not available. It's something where eviction courts are, are filing cases and there's no aggregated area where they are collecting all this data so that they can even know themselves what's going on. So the real big problem for most of these localities is that nobody is aware. Um, nobody has the data and it's actually it's potentially impossible in some places to actually have a rigorous way of figuring it out. So given all of that, um, obviously, people are still really concerned about what's going on at the bottom end of the rental market. And so during the pandemic, uh, they turned to a relatively new source of data, which is the Census Pulse data source, which is uh, a survey that the U.S. government Census Bureau was conducting to try to figure out what is actually going on in real time across the country as the pandemic kind of took hold. And they did it rapidly, right? It launched in late April of 2020, so sort of just a month into the crisis. Exactly. It happened really quickly. And people were using this data to try to figure out, you know, uh, get a sense on the ground week to week, because the, the survey was coming out every single week, how things were changing and, um, you know, what was going on. Obviously, the problem with this is that you don't have anything to compare it to because the survey starts in, in April. So you don't have like a baseline of comparison from pre-pandemic. So that's a big problem. And then there are other problems like Salim Firth from Mercatus Institute has pointed out that um, if you look specifically at the questions that eviction researchers were using, you're losing and gaining up to 20% of the rental population every week. So there's something going on inside the data collection that is causing problems as well. 
It's it's funny. I was actually I was a respondent in the Census Pulse survey. Oh, really? Yeah. And I only filled the full thing out once because it was really cool. The government like decided really rapidly to do this thing. But the, the design of the forms was just awful. It took forever to fill out this thing. It was a really long list of questions. Some of them were sort of oddly structured. And I think we'll, we'll get in in a second in terms of exactly what they asked people maybe was not a reliable indicator of whether they were likely to face eviction, for example. Um, but it was it was a really broad set of questions about economic and other, and other concerns. And it took me, it must have taken me 25 minutes to fill the thing out. Yes. <laughs> and then the next week it came in and I just, I had other stuff to do. And so to your point about people falling in and out of the survey, I can see why people would not have responded to it. And it also makes me wonder, you know, would you be more likely to fill out the survey if you felt especially stressed out about something and you really wanted the government to know? Or would you be more likely to fill out the survey if you would become unemployed because you had time to fill out this 25-minute survey? So I thought, you know, it was a really cool idea, but I sort of had this firsthand experience that that made mm-hmm. me sort of, it made me really understand when people were having problems with data quality, I could see why you would have those problems. Yeah. And I mean, that's um, part of exactly what the problem was. So the relevant question that people are looking at is um, trying to assess people's confidence in their ability to pay the next month's rent. And one of the researchers tells me uh, that I talked to, uh, well, basically was like, you know, part of the issue is that people are just often responding with the generalized anxiety they feel both about their economic situation and also about the pandemic. So, you know, if you just have regular fears about instability, then maybe you're less confident in general about your ability to make any kind of promises about the future. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of that noise in there and that data as well that was problematic. But the other issue is just kind of like when researchers looked at this data, they um, had to make a lot of judgment calls about like what they were going to say it meant. So when someone says, I have moderate confidence in my ability to make next month's rent. I don't think to me it's reasonable to say that person is at risk of eviction. You know, I don't know, like I have had moderate confidence in my ability to make rent, but like I knew that if things got really bad, I could call, you know, I'm like, I can call my family. I could maybe like put it on my credit card and like an extra fee. Like I, I, I would not have put myself at risk of eviction at the times in my life where I've been like, I'm a little bit worried about how much money I might have in my bank account. And so it's one of those things where, you know, I think that they had to make that kind of judgment call. And we could talk more about like why I think that judgment call was made in the direction of 30 to 40 million. But just just to set the stage here, when they made the prediction that 30 to 40 million people are at risk of eviction, that's the bottom third of the entire rental market. This would be an unprecedented like catastrophe. This is something where, you know, we should have been a lot more and including myself, like I uncritically reported on on this number as well in 2020, a lot more skeptical that this number was was reasonable to begin with at all. So that's one of the issues there that you have this data that was not as not as high quality as we thought it was when we were analyzing it. But then there, there are a number of other things that, that intervened that changed the eviction outlook. I mean, one of them, first of all, is economic performance was a lot better in certain ways than we expected it would be. And then also we had this extremely robust government fiscal response in terms of very enhanced unemployment, where a lot of people were receiving unemployment benefits that exceeded the income that they were receiving when they were working. You'd had these $1,200 checks and, and, and a fiscal response that was larger than in most other rich countries relative to the size of our economy. So how much of it is that we didn't have evictions because we did those things that produced a better uh, economic performance than we expected? And then we also had certain specific programs. And I know that there were problems with implementation, but the government had a lot of money that was specifically for rental assistance that was designed to avert evictions. So how much of it is that we didn't get the evictions because we saw the warning, we knew this was coming, we did the right things to stop it, and it worked? So first, just to level set, 
during the Great Recession, my expectation was that I thought that evictions must have gone up at that time significantly. Um, if you look back at eviction lab data, which I mean, we've given relevant caveats about this data, but like you don't actually see massive spikes going on at this time. So if your model of eviction is just there's economic instability and therefore people get evicted, that's clearly not the entire story. There's some reason to believe that, of course, landlords are like, if I have a reasonably good tenant who's trying to make rent and there's a massive economic downturn, I'm not sure whether I can replace that tenant with someone who can make rent. So perhaps for some people, people, there's variation in whether or not they're going to actually increase eviction rates during economic downturn. So our priors are like, maybe we're not really sure about what happens with evictions. And there's probably a lot of variation depending on what's going on in the rental market. The second thing is, I think I do agree that a a large reason why we didn't see a lot of pain happen at the lower end is because uh, unemployment insurance in particular was replacing more than 100% of people's income in many cases. And so that was happening almost immediately after the pandemic's economic effects started to be felt. And on top of that, there's a ton of help being le- uh, given to businesses across the country, which meant that you know a lot of places didn't have to go fully out of business. And that meant that hiring could pick up pretty quickly after there was some sort of normalization of the economy after a couple of months. And so in most situations, right, like this, like even if the economy had like not been that severely affected, a lot of businesses without that government support probably would have gone out of business and there would have been a lot more lag time before they were able to hire people. So there's a lot of things going on here that that the government response is responsible for. I think for many of the failed predictions, it was just that um, you know, no one was anticipating the, the the size and the speed with which the federal government was going to intervene in the economy. And so I think that is a large portion here. But I, I do want to stress that for some of these predictions, I still don't think it was even um, reasonable to have the kinds of numbers we were looking at. Yeah, that's part of why actually I wanted to start with the eviction estimates, because you sort of identified that as one of the predictions that the fact that we had better economic performance and more robust government intervention, that that couldn't fully explain how wrong the estimates were, that they were unreasonable, even under a much more dire economic scenario. Yeah. And so what are factors, I mean, besides low quality of the data, I mean, one one thing you talk about is there's sort of an ideological factor here that drives a lot of these predictions, that you have mostly left of center experts weighing in with very genuine subject matter expertise, but who also have, have priors about policy responses responses that they would like to see. And so you see you see predictions that sort of shade in the direction about the necessity of those responses, which would in this instance tend to mean, you know, more dire predictions than than would be reasonable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard here because I, I mean, I have no evidence that there are people who are like, you know, thinking very much like, oh, how do I uh, create a report that will make sure that my ideological priors are then borne out by the federal government? <laughs> I think that I think I think most people, though, uh, have a sense that and when it comes to evictions, for instance, in general, people are very worried about how how underrated they are in breaking up families and how they create harm to communities. And so um, you get to a crisis like this and you see potentially massive harm coming on this issue that you work on. And I think it's just motivated reasoning in many cases. I mean, because like right now, uh, a lot of people are, are responding to the who are within the eviction world responding to the article and saying, we didn't say that 30 to 40 million people would be evicted. We said they would be at risk of eviction, which it just becomes a meaningless term. I mean, I would be always at risk of eviction if I'm a renter. I guess that that's true as well. So you could have said 100% of the population's at risk of eviction. So at some point, it's kind of just like, there's there's some level of of what's going on here is that people saw the crisis as a way of implementing policy changes that they thought were good before the crisis ever happened. And I think that that's, you know, I mean, I agree with them on a lot of these issues here, but I do think part of the problem um, what we're talking about is that at some point, I think people have for 
forgotten that it's important to also know what is actually going on in order to help people. That it's important to know that just because someone hasn't been evicted does not mean that there's not like a massive cost potentially happening in their lives that maybe the government needs to reach them. That if you measure the harm to the rental market as there's 30 to 40 million, there's a tsunami of evictions and avalanche of evictions, then you're setting the bar for aid for people at a much higher level than I think should be set. You describe basically the, the importance of perseverance as something that undermined a number of these predictions, that basically bad things happened. And in addition to this aid that we got from the government, people figured out how to work things out um, in ways that could be personally painful in a lot of cases, but they worked more or less to avert a substantial fraction of the number of crises that were faced here, not just on eviction, but on job loss and, and a number of other things. And I think there's been this sort of trend, at least in journalism over the last few years, where there's sort of this, there's this stigma about self-help where basically like if you write about, you know, how you can deal with this thing that is caused by some systemic problem that that's perceived as as victim blaming or as justifying the ongoing existence of the problem or saying that we don't need a policy response to it because people can fix things themselves and i think you know that i think you need to sort of balance there you need policymakers to focus on systemic issues and you need individuals to know what they can do in their own situations and you want to ideally do those things simultaneously but i wonder if that's bled from a normative claim into a positive one which is that you know for so long in certain circles people were discouraged from talking about self-help that people sort of forgot about the role that it was inevitably going to play in the aftermath of an economic crisis, that there would be a lot of adaptation by individuals and also by businesses uh, that wouldn't be directed by the government, that wouldn't rely on a policy response, and that would, at certain costs, have certain positive effects. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those areas where it's so tricky because I think we've gotten to the point where talking about resilience, as I term it, is like saying like, oh, these people don't need help. See, they're fine. They're taking out their payday loans. So like, why are you worrying about them? And that's not at all the point. The point is that you are going to have an incorrect model of what it means to be a person in the world who is struggling with these problems. If you think that most people who, uh, you know, let me take the, the example of um, women's labor force participation. If, if you think that when women are struggling with daycare, their immediate response is to just lose their jobs. Like you're just like not accurately representing what's happening to women. What the reason why women were so stressed out during the pandemic was because in addition to continuing doing their jobs, they also had to take on all of this extra childcare and home care and often do it simultaneously. There's some evidence they, they were uh, having to do it while also teaching their kids and making sure they were on track with their education. And so like, you should understand that, that if that's the model, then like there's a potentially different set of policy solutions because you're also worried about the fact that if women are trying to do their jobs while taking care of their kids, are there parts of time where kids are being unsupervised in a way that's like unsafe for those children where you wouldn't expect that if women had completely dropped out of the labor market? Or are you saying that like uh, women should not actually be getting help unless they are fully unemployed, in which case you're leaving out a large tranche of people who are going to continue working because otherwise, you know, maybe they would get evicted, maybe they would have all these negative economic outcomes happen to them. And so I think the big thing here is understanding resilience is understanding how it is when people are put under massive economic stress, how they actually behave. And I think I, you're completely right here that there's become an expectation that there's not any kind of personal resilience at all in the face of this, in which case people are often wrongly estimating how people behave in, in the face of economic uncertainty. 
I think it's it's interesting to compare this to some of the the business adaptations because I think those are less ideologically fraught. The idea that you know, that businesses will will bob and weave and do things they're not comfortable doing. I think people don't they, they don't feel uncomfortable in the same way talking about that or saying that we need to put that expectation on them. So I mean, in, in New York City where I live, you saw restaurants that that adapted in tremendous ways. That in conjunction with those policy programs, I, a lot of those restaurants would not have been able to stay open if not for PPP and and other aid programs that that were supporting them and the the broader economic assistance that were giving people money that they could then spend on takeout from from those restaurants but you saw you know you, you saw business model changes you saw them d- delivering things that they had never delivered before you saw them building all of these structures out in the street and I I think one one question that that then raises though is the extent to which that there are you know, the, the government can assist in certain aspects of that. You know, you need the government to make rules and issue permits about, you know, if you're going to build streeteries and that sort of thing. But one of the pluses of an, an adaptive response that involved individuals and businesses finding ways to change in the face of adversity is that you could have sort of distributed knowledge and you had restaurants try out things and figure out what worked and what didn't. And it worked better than a top-down approach would have in a lot of cases. And I wonder what the, what the lessons of that are for individuals, because obviously there are, there are problems with putting a a lot of the freight of this on people, especially people with lower incomes as they try to adapt. But they also may have more knowledge about their individual needs and situation than the government does. And I think one of the things I wonder about is the extent to which when you have well-intentioned top-down responses from the government, uh, they don't end up actually meeting the specific needs that people have that they know something more about how to how to meet themselves. So I, I, I don't really have an answer here, but I wonder about building those models where you, where you rely more on that local knowledge in the way that you can when you rely on people's resilience while trying to be fair and supportive in the process. I don't, I don't know whether we've, I wonder about whether we've learned useful things about that to apply in the next crisis. Well, I hope what we've learned is that unemployment insurance in particular was one of the best forms of aid that we could be giving people. It was only restricted to the fact that you lost your job and you needed help. And people were going to give you money. You could spend it on rent. You could spend it on food. You could spend it on what you wanted to spend it on. And the largest takeaway I hope people have from this article that I wrote is just that um, without that, it would have been so much worse. Because that underlines why the state and local budget crisis wasn't that bad. It underlines why the food insecurity crisis wasn't that bad. It underlines why the businesses were able to stay in operation and then hire folks uh, later on down the line. And now we're seeing even greater rates of business formation from pre-pandemic and greater rates of entrepreneurship from pre-pandemic. Pandemic. And so this large economic consensus that was building pre-pandemic around giving people money and the importance of, you know, giving people the kind of like this lower bound of, of aid that is kind of unrestricted, um, I think it hopefully has been vindicated and really strengthened during this crisis. And, you know, one of the big things that policymakers have been pushing now is this idea of implementing automatic stabilizers, which are essentially that the federal government should have some series of metrics that if they get triggered, like let's say the unemployment rate gets too high or something else happens, automatically some form of aid is immediately starting to be given out, uh, potentially in in the form of unemployment insurance or other things. And so my hope is that those are the kinds of lessons that are taken away. I think there are other secondary lessons about being a little bit more uh, uh, wary of the amount of data that's floating around here. In particular, I think one of the big things that changed around this crisis that we didn't see last time or any other time is that there was just so much data floating around. And so I think it ended up really baking in people's ideas about what was going on. Because when you hear like a theory, when you're a smart person say like, hey, I have this idea of how the economy works and what I think is going to happen. I think you process, I mean, I personally, I process that very differently than when I'm on Twitter and I see like, oh, like someone put together this graph and like it has great data and I don't really look into it, but like I see the nines and they're kind of like stuck in my head now. And now I have like a baked in perception of this. And so much of that data was being mediated by um, really smart people, really smart experts. But I think it baked in a lot of preconceptions that would have 
been um, people would have updated a lot faster if it, if it wasn't kind of under this uh, uh, auspice of like research. There, there's one big caveat, though, to, to the success of giving people money that you, that you talk about there, where we had unemployment insurance probably being the most significant component of it, or maybe unemployment insurance and the, and, the, and the PPP program. We sort of we blasted all this money out into the economy and we did not have the prolonged recovery that we had out of the Great Recession, the big fears about, you know, huge unemployment persisting for years and years uh, that it would take forever to recover the economic activity levels that we had pre-pandemic. That, that's all gone great. We really beat expectations on that. But we have really high inflation right now. And it's related to that money blast that basically, at, at least in the last round of the aid, uh, the American Rescue Plan, which w- was approved shortly after Joe Biden came into office, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your thought on this, I, th- I think now in retrospect was clearly too large. And some of the prior rounds of aid, I don't know that they were too large, but there are, in the heat of the moment, as we tried to get all this money out, some of it was not super well targeted. I mean, I don't think we really intended to have unemployment payments that were more than 100% of pay replacement for so many people, but for various program design reasons, we couldn't really fine tune that that well. We sort of had to add a fixed number of dollars to most of the checks, and that meant that you were going to give people more money than they'd been been earning prior. Uh, The PPP program helped keep a lot of businesses afloat, but there are other businesses that would have been just fine, and it was based basically a big windfall that the the business got this additional money, even though it would have kept its employees on payroll and kept operating anyway. Um, And all this money ends up sloshing around in the economy. You had great improvement in household balance sheets. And it's one of the big reasons that you have all these people going out, trying to spend all this money. And now we have inflation of like eight and a half percent. So I guess, I mean, there's two big problems with that. I mean, one is a substantive problem that that that's a reason that real wages have been declining over the, the last several months. People are really upset about that. It's reducing their standards of living. And then the other one is is for future politics. I mean, we learned some lessons from this about how to avoid unemployment, but we also learned some lessons about, you know, if you if you overdo this, you're likely to get this high inflation. And so I I wonder about, you know, whether it's really established a track record that's going to encourage policymakers to do more of this next time or to try to enshrine it in automatic stabilizers, which would mean that you'd have the enhanced payments just as a matter of law, rather than Congress having to vote on them on an ad hoc basis. So I, you know, I, I think that's a that's my number one concern right now about the relation between the economy and politics. That I think we, I, I think we we got a lot of things right, but we got this one really big thing wrong uh, that's going to affect how we can respond the next time, and that's created a big problem that we have to deal with right now. Yeah, I think that it's hard because on one hand, I still agree with a lot of the things people were saying about it would have been more painful to do. It's worse to do too little than it is to do too much. I think that that was still a correct thing to believe, given what we saw about the recovery following the Great Recession. Part of this is that uh, the question of what we learned from this is is really dependent, I think, on how the next like year or so ends up playing out. So I think it's pretty clear at this point that the Fed has updated its expectations on inflation in, in a positive direction. They're going to be less expansionary in their policy from uh, from now on. And that's, and that's I think, a, a good thing. I think it's pretty clear that ARP was, was too big in hindsight as well. Um, and there were people at the time who were saying it. So it's not something where I think it was one of those things that's like, I think some people were trying to cast this as like an unknowable fact about the a- ARP. At the time, there were uh, experts who were cautioning around the size of this. And I also think that like, you know, one of the things here is that, you know, at the end of the day, the institutions responsible for controlling inflation is the Fed. Um, so the fiscal response from the federal government, I think, was too big and like they should have been more targeted. Um, and like likely, I think almost everyone at this point who is, you know, a policymaker who's, who's, who's an economic policymaker in the federal government is aware of this. But, you know, I think most responsibility here has to be on the Fed in order to respond to these kinds of crises effectively. So given that, I think now we're seeing a, a better updating of that. I do think that the Fed is an institution that does, you know, reasonably um, engage with the literature and does change its mind, not fast enough for this crisis, but hopefully in the future we'll see that happening. 
And so then how is how is that experience and the experience you describe in the article with all of these predictions that didn't come true from 2020, how is that affecting the way that you think about inflation and macroeconomic policy right now? I mean, you're seeing competing predictions and competing prescriptions from people about this. In particular, I, I, in the last week, there's been this sort of upsurge uh, in commentary and articles basically arguing that the, the Fed, which is probably going to raise interest rates by about two percentage points, maybe a little bit more by early next year, that it really needs to be much more aggressive than that, that interest rates need to be raised by several points quite quickly, uh, that otherwise, you know, this, the inflation is going to get out of, out of hand, we're going to have to have interest rates over 10%, and then we're going to have a hard landing and a recession and that sort of thing. How are you operating in that environment of uncertainty? I don't really know what to do with all of these predictions. And are, are you, have, have the, has the experience the last two years, has it helped you, do you think, evaluate those predictions better, figure out who's, who's using the data correctly, who's talking their own book, and, and who's actually likely to be accurate about what's going to happen? So I, I spend um, some amount of time around um, the effective altruists uh, and a lot of folks who consider themselves um, uh, forecasters who attempt to, in their own time, um, make predictions and figure out if they're good at them or not. And so I think one of the big things that over the last couple of years I think is really important is to realize that not only are good forecasters wrong a ton of the time, that you can't be emotionally, too emotionally attached to a forecast. I think it's completely reasonable to be emotionally attached to, you know, helping people and making sure that they're not experiencing um, really economic really bad outcomes in their own lives. But if you're attached to a specific forecast in a way, I think that that increases the level of biases you're willing to make. I think that what's happening a lot with the inflation stuff, at least in someone who's, who's kind of just a, like a lurker on, on econ Twitter a lot of the time is that people got really attached ideologically to this model of model of inflation and model of what the appropriate fiscal response is going to be such that people it took a while for people to update around and and like while regular people were noticing inflation around them while regular people were noticing the cost it took you know, I don't know, until probably like January of this year for there to be consensus around inflation being a problem. The the model that you're saying they're attached to, this is the model that basically, you know, we've been fighting inflation too much for the last 40 years, that we've, you know, we've placed inflation concerns over employment concerns, and that you, that basically too attached to a dovish position, like thinking yeah. that inflation fighting just ends up putting people out of work and and not wanting to be someone who's calling for tightening because of this long period that we went through where it like seemed like the people who were calling for tightening were always wrong. Yeah, and I want to be clear here. I think that, that like that is still correct. I think the point is that the emotional attachment to that led people to not change their minds when they saw inflation uh, accelerating. And I think uh, the big thing here is that um, I've, there's this thing that I've noticed in general is like when people view themselves as balancers in a dialogue versus trying to find the correct answer, it can create a lot of problems. And and what I mean by that is just like if your model is, hey, like I'm really worried that uh, most macroeconomists are just way too concerned about inflation. Um, they maybe a lot of rich people care a lot more about inflation than they do about unemployment because they're not going to be affected by this. And so, in general, my goal in the public discourse is to push against this. And so, if you view yourself as a balancer in that way, which I think a lot of activists do, and, and potentially that makes sense for their role, but when you view yourself in this way, I think it can really often make it hard to change your mind. And this is something that I, I've seen in myself a lot, because I think there's a lot of things like this that, that I feel about. Like, I think that evictions are vastly underrated as a cause of real harm. And I think that's what led me to really just take at face value some of these numbers, because in my head, I was just like, yeah, evictions are really, really bad. People, policymakers don't care about them. Um, so it's reasonable that there's going to be a massive cost borne out by low income renters that no one's paying attention to. But I think that like, that doesn't really do anyone a service to to be attached to, to balancing in that way and not towards like trying to find the answer.
I want to talk a little bit about a completely separate topic. I want, I want to talk about uh, infrastructure costs, because that's something that, that you and I both have interest in and have written about. And the U.S. is one of the most expensive places in the world to build major infrastructure projects, subways and airports and those sorts of things. And one fact that I still find surprising about this is the countries that you look to that are really good performers on this, that do a lot of really cost-effective construction, tend not to be places that you would think of as like models of great governance. Like you, you want to look at like Spain and Italy uh, as places that are that are especially good at delivering cost-effective infrastructure. How is that possibly the case? What are what are they doing right in Spain? Um, Spain's interesting a case because I mean one one um, fun anecdote I heard is that in in Madrid there was a local election a few years ago and the the party that won was just the party that would just like one up the other one on the amount of infrastructure they were promising to build <laughs> the amount of transit they were <laughs> promising to spend, uh, money they were promising to spend on transit and so I think part of it here is that uh, what's going on here is just that like there is a larger just commitment towards massive. Uh, mass transit and rapid rail infrastructure in particular as a way of getting around for regular people in a way that like America does not have because we are a, primarily a car born country. Um, and so I think there's part of it. But I also think that that's like, obviously, um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Like you don't have a functioning mass transit system in New York City that provides everyone safe and accessible transit at a reasonable cost. I mean, we're seeing these ballooning costs in Second Avenue subway today. And it just creates a feedback loop of people are like, okay, this mass transit is not really for me. I can't rely on this. And so of course it, it iterates that way. Uh, the big thing that I, uh, both of us I know have talked about is this kind of like um, really reliance on citizen voice in the American context, which, which means just um, how much do we allow individual people or individual communities to deliver delay and block infrastructure projects because of sometimes reasonable, sometimes unreasonable concerns they may have about their own quality of life. Um, if you're worried about construction, right, like construction costs have to be borne by someone or else we'll never build anything. It's just like an argument against building a home anywhere or a transit line anywhere to say that like someone, no one should ever experience any kind of inconvenience because there's construction in their community. And so the problem is, though, in the U.S., we've set up systems where if someone says, I don't want there to be construction on my street, you can effectively block it entirely or you can at least delay it so much the costs run up to the point where often maybe the government has to stop the project uh, of its own volition at that point. Um, or you can sue on various grounds. I mean, there's a bunch of environmental uh, pathways that people can take to sue, despite the fact that there's like no comparative work being done around, oh, is it is it environmentally better for uh, you not to disrupt this one ecosystem versus having a transit line that will make sure people get out of their cars? It's like not how that analysis is done. It's just like, is there any environmental concern that you can raise regardless of the comparative effects or benefits? And, and and I would note that that also adds costs indirectly. I mean, sometimes it's like the project gets delayed by a lawsuit and you have actual litigation costs, but often it's that design choices are made to placate all of the people who might object and sue. So you put things underground that in another country you might be able to build at grade or, or elevated. Um, you add design features that add cost because someone in some community is very exercised about this additional ancillary thing that needs to be done associated with the project. And so sometimes that cost doesn't even show up as a litigation cost. It shows up as design choices that wouldn't be made in a country that, that had a more streamlined system. But I, I get a little despondent when focusing on this aspect of the problem because this, this feels so core to our system of government. I mean, some of it is, is the common law system, the adversarial system where you settle disputes through lawsuits. We're not going to go off common law. 
the participatory democracy reforms that mostly started in the 1970s, where you get these environmental reviews and you have more community boards and input and that sort of thing. I think people are very attached to that as a form of government. I think it's a really hard sell to go to people and say, the problem is you. And the solution is that you need to shut up and we need to stop listening to you about your concerns about what's built in your neighborhood. I think that's a, a really hard sale to make. And then even California is sort of even worse than the rest of the country on this. There's a law called the California Environmental Quality Act that just creates all sorts of protections reasons for people to sue over anything. You can sue over a bike lane because they didn't do an environmental review of whether the bike lane was going to be bad for the environment. And it's usually, it's not even, it's not really about the environment. It's about, I don't like this thing here and I'm going to say there's an environmental problem to sue over it. But it's, it's been really hard. That law is like 50 years old and they've done some very small reforms to it. But people are, you know, they're very attached to environmental quality. When you say, I want to change the Environmental Quality Act, it sounds like you're someone who hates the environment. So I, like, if, if this is where the problems lie, can we fix them? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that clearly at some level of cost, people are willing to override local concerns because what we're seeing in California, right, is that it's not that somehow there are fewer people who are opposed to construction now, but we're seeing laws passed legalizing things like duplexes, illegalizing and making it easier for development to happen of small apartment buildings. Um, and, that, and that's happening because the costs have gotten just so insane and people obviously are like, despite not knowing, I mean, I don't think the average Californian is aware of like why the, the housing crisis has gotten so bad there, but they're holding their elected officials responsible. It's one of the top issues constantly is homelessness and the housing crisis. And because of that, legislators who at this point have been bombarded with information, not just from, um, econo uh, from economists, but also just from activists and from think tanks and lobbying groups in their own government are all uniformly aware of the problem and why. And so I do think that like, you know, and this isn't a great this isn't like great uh, as, a, as a method for change, but at some point the problem just gets so bad that someone is forced to take action, even though it's politically not the most popular thing to do. Um, and I think that because it is not politically the most popular thing to do, you're seeing a lot of groups rise up to try to give political cover for um, elected officials to actually take action on this. I think that like infrastructure issue is similar as well. I mean, just in recent years myself, I feel like I've seen a, a, just a rise in um, public attention towards some of the more ridiculous antics being used by so-called environmentalist groups to block both transit infrastructure, but also just, uh, you know, renewable energy infrastructure. At some point, like, you know, I don't think I'd ever seen an article before, like two years ago, that like called out environmentalist groups for blocking renewable energy infrastructure. And I've seen like five this week. So stuff like that, I feel like, you know, it does give me some level of hope that like the problem is getting bad enough and the argument is getting loud enough that change is forced to happen. But you know, I'm not super optimistic. <laughs> That's interesting going back to what you described about that election in Madrid, because I, I think part of the problem here, especially to your point about transit, is, is who's in the coalition that is pushing for these government services. And I think often in the U.S., more so than in Europe, the, the key constituency that's lobbying for this stuff is the provider rather than the consumer. So it's, you know, around transit infrastructure in New York, you have uh, construction firms that build these projects and you have unions that represent both the employees of the construction firms and also the employees of the Transportation Authority. And they all they all want spending on transit. But their incentives are quite different from the incentives of the transit riders, which is, you know, high costs and high profit margins for builders and, and, and high wages for construction workers are all very much in the interest of those of those producer groups. They're not really necessarily they're they're usually not in the interest of the of the riders. And so what you described there with housing, I mean, traditionally you have real estate developers that lobby for policies that allow you to build more 
more structures, including more housing units, you're describing that increasing consciousness of users of housing, of their status as a, you know, as an interested party in these debates and pushing for, for increases in supply. I don't think we've really seen that that much on the transportation side. I think you're right that we've seen some of these egregious cases that they get covered and people are like, oh, how awful. How did it take 20 years to build a bus rapid transit line on Van Ness Avenue in, in San Francisco because you had all of this, you know, all of this litigation over supposed environmental issues from that. And, and you might get a little bit of streamlining. But I don't I don't think you're getting it in the way that you are with housing, where people are, you know, as you say, it's the number one issue for a lot of people in California. It's so expensive and people are increasingly conscious of the way that public policies have made it expensive and that you could increase supply and make it cheaper. I don't see that conversation nearly as much around transportation. The funny thing is, it seems like it should be possible even without people focusing on their identity as transit users, because we also, highways are really expensive to build in the US. Like, even if you're just trying to build car-centric infrastructure, we're still overpaying for that. And in theory, for drivers, we could have more nicer, newer road infrastructure, including the, you know, the fixing more of the crumbling bridges that people are always complaining about. But I don't, I don't feel like the, that case is really broken through at all, that basically we're overpaying for this stuff and that's why you don't have the infrastructure you want. And I, I don't know, people only have time to worry about so many individual things, but I feel like that's, that's one of the steps there, that we really need a lot more consciousness around that if we're going to get change. Yeah, I think a couple of things here. One is that I don't think it's necessary that people understand fully the mechanism of why they're not getting the product they want. I think that like they just need to care a lot more that they're not getting that product. For, I mean, with roads, I just don't think it's that bad for people that like, I mean, people talk about crumbling infrastructure all the time. I'm like skeptical about how crumbling the infrastructure really is. Um, well, that's, that's another like... <laughs> thing. People always cite that report card, which is from yeah. the civil engineering industry. It's like, yeah, people who would like you to spend more money on bridge design and building uh, say all the bridges are bad and you, and you need to work on them. Exactly. So I, that, I mean, my, my, my expectation is like the reason people aren't complaining about highways and cars and roads is because like it's mostly just fine. They can get around. and It's like not a big deal for them. But the second thing I'll say is that I do think that there is, I mean, for the first time in American history, there is a large upwardly mobile constituency growing in urban areas that has reasonably urbanist tastes. Like they like in most of American history, like people did not live in cities or even close to like dense areas once they had any kind of money. Like they just immediately went to further out into the suburbs and like bought a nice house and they like lived in their suburban community and they drove around. Increasingly now we have um, young people who are in their thirties, even having children and wanting to stay in cities or stay in dense areas. And so we see um, even as there's been kind of an exodus towards the suburban areas of uh, major American cities, this kind of desire to still have some of that urbanist taste in their communities. And so you've seen the rise in this conversation around the quote unquote 15 minute city or whatever, um, where you have the ability to have like your place that you shop, your kid's school, like your work, like within a reasonable biking or walking distance of you, even if you yourself are still driving, you don't want to be in these far-flung, really uh, segmented out suburban developments. And that kind of personal consumer taste change that we're witnessing happening amongst an important part of the market, I think is going to drive a little, uh, can drive hopefully more transit opportunities for people. And I think that like, this is somewhat borne out in the fact that if you go to places like, um, like Northern Virginia, or you go toward places like Oakland or places like this, you do see evidence of like, oh, there's like some protected bike lanes, there's protected bus lanes, even bus only infrastructure. If it was such the case that like this was just not possible to get people to care about, it feels like that would not be happening because it is relatively costly to be doing it. So like the fact that they're overcoming these costs uh, does indicate to me that there's like some level of constituency here and it's growing. But yeah, I mean, like the broad expectation that we should have here is that the problem is not going to be solved um, in the near future. It does seem like something where we're going to continue having these problems. The costs will be really high. 
I will say that uh, for when it comes to transit infrastructure costs and housing infrastructure costs, it's not solely just the citizen voice problem. There's stuff that you can do internally in a lot of these agencies to either empower agency workers or to streamline the process um, that we can import from um, people uh, in different countries um, that could help lower costs. And also, like of course, there's materials costs and things that are playing a really big role in housing and infrastructure as well. And so really addressing the technological aspect of this as well is important. So I think that even if people don't want to or don't think that there's like really a chance or a hope of dealing with the citizen voice problem, we don't need to be spending like $2 billion on the Second Avenue <laughs> subway expansion. Like it could be like somewhat less than that. Yeah. And I mean, even in the US, you see, I mean, the costs are too high everywhere, but they are not as excessively high in Los Angeles as they are in New York. Yes. Um, where New York you have is a, a exception. <laughs> somewhat less egregious mega project ongoing right now to build a subway under Wilshire Boulevard. Uh, and so there are there are certain construction method choices that they made where they, they they cut Wilshire Boulevard open to build cut and cover stations that's cheaper than the the underground digging that they did in New York. And so there, there are some of those choices that you could, in theory, make. Uh, before we go, I want to ask about a somewhat surprising policy area that relates to that question of whether you're going to get those those newer, denser developments providing sufficient numbers of new housing units in cities. Taxing the value of land, as distinct from a regular property tax, you know, property tax is on the value of your whole property, the land and the building. There's this sort of fringe political movement, Georgism, that like that focuses on the, it's a very old movement, almost 200 years old. Yeah. Why would we get better outcomes, including more housing by having taxes that specifically apply to the land rather than to the land and the buildings? Yeah. So uh, Henry George, 1840s uh, is when he was born. So it's <laughs> 200 years old. So essentially the idea is, is obviously people I think are, are very familiar with property taxes. Um, and what land tax uh, purports to do is to try and separate out um, the value of what you are doing on that land, whether it's farming or you have a house or you have a parking lot, away from like the value of the land itself, which is derived from you know its proximity to maybe like a you know a good road or its proximity to a good school um, can increase the value of that land separate from whatever is happening actually to make that land extract value from that land. So the reason why that we people think that this could, um, including me, well, the reason why I think that this could really help development of important uses is that when you tax the value of the land, you really push people to extract as much value from it as possible from the property that you put on it. So right now, for instance, right, like if you own like this lot of land in the center of like Times Square, and you have just a parking lot on it, and you basically anything that you do on a piece of land, you can make a ton of money off of because everyone wants to do something. Like the, people want to park in the middle of that land. People want to have a housing on that land. People want to have an office building on that land. It doesn't matter. You could do any of those things and you'll make a lot of money. So there's no incentive to do like but put a bunch of work into it, especially because if you improve the property, your property taxes go up. So moving from a prop, uh, moving from a parking lot to a massive office building increases a bunch of your taxes, even though you could make money. Instead, with a land value tax, right, regardless of what you do on that piece of land, you're going to get taxed a bunch of the value of that land away. So then your incentive is let me do the most valuable thing possible on that land. So in the middle of Times Square or in the middle of uh, Central City, New York, perhaps the answer here is to create a big office this building, perhaps the answer here is to likely just make a bunch of housing units because the amount of that people are willing to pay for that is really high. And so what essentially land tax tries to do is that it tries to force the owners of land to do the most valuable thing possible with that land or else face the really high costs uh, that they won't be able to make up for in, in the rents they're able to extract from it. Um, and I think what we see right now is that there are a lot of people who are um, homeowners who kind of believe that if you change 
that, that are not incentivized to allow for greater development of their land because for, for various reasons. But if taxes like this exist, then their goal is to say like, okay, how can I make sure that I have like an ADU on my land to make sure that I can get a rent that, from that's that? That's an accessory dwelling unit. It's like a, a granny flat attached to your house. Exactly. So like the, the aphorism is you tax something and get less of it. And that's that's true. Of, you know, like if, if you raise an income tax, it doesn't cause people to stop working. But at the margin, people might work a little bit less because they're going get to get to keep less of their income. The idea with the land tax is that you cannot get less land. Yeah. The land exists. The amount of land is fixed. And so you put a tax on the land and it doesn't cause an economic distortion. It doesn't cause there to be less land. Whereas a building, you know, people think of that. It's, it's a very long lasting asset, but ultimately it's a thing that you have to put big upfront investment in to create. You have to maintain it. That's a real economic activity, the creation and, and maintenance of a building in the, in the way that, that it isn't with land. The problem with this politically is that a lot of the people who have underutilized land are going to be people who are going to be politically vocal and upset about this thing that ends up basically worsening their economic interests. If you have single family homes in a neighborhood where you're allowed to build apartments, people might already be upset about that because an apartment building is going to go up next to them and they don't like that. Um, but then you switch to a land value tax and their taxes are going to go up relative to the residents of the apartment buildings because they use relative more land and less building. And so that seems like, you know, a real political obstacle to this. It's not only giving people the option to build that stuff. They sort of, they might feel like you're pushing them out. You're saying your land is underutilized, which it is. But the way to address that is to move out of your home and tear it down and build something new. And a lot of people are very emotionally attached to the way things are right now. So I was interested that you wrote about that Allentown, Pennsylvania actually has a tax like this. And now it's not, it's, it's not a tax that's solely on the value of land. It's based, it's what's called a split roll, where you have the, the land, they value your land and your home or your land and your building separately and they tax the land at a higher rate. What did that look like politically to get that in place? Because I imagine, you know, the, the reasons that we don't have that are, I assume, are some of that, that political issue that I described there. How do you actually sell this to people and get them to implement it? Because I, I you described that it, it looks like Allentown actually got more real estate development than the neighbor, neighboring city of Bethlehem after they implemented this policy. So how, what, what, do, what do we learn from that about how to take that to your city? Yeah. First of all, I think, it, uh, you know, it's as, as you mentioned, it's, pre- it's extremely unlikely that this is something that's going to be passed in a bunch of places in the U.S., despite I think there's a growing movement to, to try and get policymakers to consider it. But I, I think what ha- what are, what's instructive about Allentown is that the problem they had is not the problem of, of New York City in particular. They had a bunch of absentee landlords, essentially, who owned uh, you know a bunch of different plots of land and were paying like very nominal property taxes because they didn't have anything on that land. It was like a kind of an abandoned lot. And so like it was very basically almost zero cost to hold on to that land. But that creates like community problems. You have like abandoned lots of land that aren't taken up. Like it reduces the value of other properties nearby. And so I think a big thing that happened there is that people were making the case that and which was ended up being true that for most people this would become a tax cut. And the the people for whom this would be a tax increase were not like your local friendly homeowner. It was people who are absentee landlords and uh, were ruining the value of your own home in your community. And so what ends up happening and the reason why you get more development in Allentown is because it kind of pushes a lot of these absentee property owners to uh, develop their land or to sell it to someone who will. And so you do see that kind of increase. So I think that this is a thing where, you know, um, you could see a lot more of like maybe more rural or more you know, less densely populated areas where there aren't a contingent of homeowners that would create this kind of opposition. Or maybe somewhat declined industrial cities, which I believe was the the situation that Allentown was in. Exactly. So I think places like that, especially because what we see in a lot of these um, cities is that the infrastructure was built up for a much larger population that does not exist anymore. So you want still there to be the most valuable use of that land that's available, but often that's not just like, you know, a crumbling housing unit that no one's living in. Let's leave it there for this week. Jerusalem Dempsis, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. 
Jerusalem Dempsis is a staff writer at The Atlantic. You can find her piece about bad COVID economic predictions there. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast newsletter as a paying subscriber at joshbarrow.com. Your subscription directly funds this newsletter and podcast and makes them possible. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo, like in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>